Chapter 6 Murder, Hunting and War Cannibalism Transgression outside well-defined limits is rare. Within them, taboos may well be violated in accordance with rules that ritual, or at least custom, dictate and organise. The alternation of taboo and transgression, which otherwise would be hard to grasp, is most clearly seen in eroticism. On the other hand, a coherent picture of eroticism would be impossible unless the swing from taboo to transgression and back, in the main a religious phenomenon, is taken into account. But first, let us consider the associations of death. It is noteworthy that the taboo surrounding the dead has no complementary desire running counter to the revulsion. At first sight, sexual objects excite alternate attraction and repulsion, hence the taboo and its suspension. Freud based his interpretation of the taboo on the primal necessity of erecting a protective barrier against excessive desires bearing upon objects of obvious frailty. If he goes on to discuss the taboo on touching a corpse, he must imply that the taboo protected the corpse from other people's desire to eat it. This is a desire no longer active in us, one we never feel now. Archaic societies, however, do show the taboo as alternatively in force and suspended. Man is never looked upon as butcher's meat, but he is frequently eaten ritually. The man who eats human flesh knows full well that this is a forbidden act. Knowing this taboo to be fundamental, he will religiously violate it nevertheless. There is a significant example in the communion feast following on the sacrifice. The human flesh that is eaten then is held as sacred. We are nowhere near a return to the simple animal ignorance of taboo. The object some undiscriminating animal is after is not what is desired. The object is forbidden, sacred, and the very prohibition attached to it is what arouses the desire. Religious cannibalism is the elementary example of the taboo as creating desire. The taboo does not create the flavour, and taste of the flesh, but stands as the reason why the pious cannibal consumes it. This paradox of the attraction of forbidden fruit will be seen again when we come to eroticism. Duels, Feuds and War We may find the desire to eat human flesh completely alien to us, but not so the desire to kill. Not all of us feel it, but who would go so far as to deny that it has a lively, if not as exacting, an existence among the masses as sexual appetite? There is a potential killer in every man. The frequency of senseless massacres throughout history makes that much plain. The desire to kill relates to the taboo on murder in just the same way as does the desire for sexual activity, to the complex of prohibitions limiting it. Sexual activity is only forbidden in certain cases, but then so is murder. It may be more roundly and more generally forbidden than sexual activity is, but the taboo, like that on sex, only serves to limit killing on certain specific situations. The formula has a massive simplicity. Thou shalt not kill. Universal, yes, but obvious exceptions are implied, except in wartime, and other circumstances allowed more or less by the body politic. So, there is a nearly perfect analogy between it and the sexual commandment that runs, Thou shalt not perform the carnal act except in matrimony alone. To this should be obviously added, 
or in certain cases, hallowed by custom. A man may kill another in a duel, in a feud, and in a war. Murder is criminal. Murder implies that the taboo is either not known or not heeded. Duels, feuds, and war do violate an accepted taboo, but according to set rules. In the duel of today, with its complicated procedure, the sense of something forbidden is dominant. Not so with primitive peoples. With them, the taboo could only be violated with a religious intent. The duels cannot have been the confrontation of mere individuals as they were from the Middle Ages onwards. In the first place, the duel was a form of war. The two sides pinned their faith on the valour of their champions who met in single combat after a challenge duly given and received, fighting it out in front of the masses intent on mutual destruction. Feuds are a kind of war where the antagonists belong to a tribe rather than to a territory. Like duels, like war, they are ordered with detailed precision. The hunt and the expiation of the animal's death. In feuds and duels, and in war, which we shall consider later, it is a man's death that occurs, although the law forbidding killing is earlier than the distinction felt by man himself and the larger animals. Indeed, this distinction comes quite late. To begin with, man saw himself as like the animals, and this attitude persists to this day in hunting peoples with their primitive customs. Hence, the hunting of primitive man is no less than duels, feuds and war, a form of transgression. Yet there is one significant difference. It seems that murder of a fellow human was unknown in the very earliest times when humanity was closest to the animals. Footnote. There is no taboo as such on the killing by one animal of another like itself, but in fact such killings are rare in instinctive animal behaviour, whatever difficulties instinct may raise. Even fights between animals of the same species do not necessarily end in a kill. On the other hand, in those days it must have been usual to hunt other animals. We could maintain that hunting is the outcome of work, made possible only by the fabrication of stone tools and weapons. But even if the taboo were generally a consequence of work, it could not have come into being so swiftly as to rule out a long period during which hunting developed, and no taboo on killing animals surrounded it. Anyway, we cannot imagine a period dominated by the taboo, and then a return to hunting after a deliberate act of transgression. The taboo on hunting offers the same characteristics as other taboos. I have stressed the fact that, broadly speaking, there is a taboo on sexual activity, but this can only be readily grasped through a comparison with the taboo on hunting among hunting peoples. Men do not necessarily abstain from the forbidden activity, but take part in it as a conscious infringement of the law. Neither hunting nor sexual activity could be forbidden in practice. The taboo cannot suppress pursuits necessary to life, but it can give the significance of a religious violation. It imposes limits on them and controls the form that they take. It can exact penance from the guilty. The act of killing invested the killer, hunter or warrior with a sacramental character. In order to take their place once more in profane society, they had to be cleansed and purified, and this was the object of expiatory rituals. Primitive societies give numerous examples of these. 
Prehistorians usually ascribe a magical significance to cave paintings. The hunters were after these animals and they were depicted in the hope the pictorial expression of the wish would make the wish come true. I am not so sure that this was so. Might not the secret and religious atmosphere of the caves have corresponded with the religious nature of transgression, which indisputably invested the hunt with significance? Representation would then have followed on transgression. This would be difficult to prove, but if prehistorians were to visualise the alternation of taboo and transgression, and perceive clearly the religious aura that surrounded the animals as they were done to death, I think we might adopt the standpoint in greater harmony with the importance of religion in the earliest development of humanity, in preference to the magical image theory which has something poor and unsatisfying about it. The cave drawings must have been intended to depict that instant when the animal appeared, and killing, at once inevitable and reprehensible, laid bare life's mysterious ambiguity. Tormented man refuses life, yet lives it out as he miraculously transcends his own refusal. This hypothesis rests on the fact that expiation regularly follows upon the killing of an animal among peoples whose way of life is probably similar to that of the cave artists. Its great merit is to suggest a coherent interpretation of the Lascaux pit painting, where a dying bison faces the man who has probably killed it, and whom the painter shows as a dead man. The subject of this famous picture, which has called forth numerous contradictory and unsatisfactory explanations, would therefore be murder and expiation. This view has at least the virtue of replacing the magical and utilitarian interpretation of cave pictures with its obvious insufficiency by a religious one, more in keeping with notions of the ultimate and human sacrifice that are usually the concern of art, and are here echoed by the prodigious paintings come down to us from the depths of the past. The Earliest Record of War Hunting must be considered as a primitive form of transgression, apparently earlier than war, which seems to have been unknown to the men of the Franco-Cantabrian painted caves living during the Upper Paleolithic period. At any rate, war would not have had the primary importance it attained later for our earliest fellow men. Indeed, they put us in mind of the Eskimos, who up to our own day have lived mostly ignorant of war. War was first depicted by the men of the rock paintings of eastern Spain. Their pictures seem to date partly from the end of the Upper Paleolithic, partly from the succeeding period. Towards the end of the Upper Paleolithic, 10 or 15,000 years ago, the transgression of the taboo forbidding originally the killing of animals, considered as essentially the same as man, and then the killing of man himself, became formalised in war. Just like the taboos surrounding death, the transgression of these taboos has left far-reaching signs, as we shall see. I have remarked earlier that any certain knowledge of sexual taboos and transgression dates only from historical times. There are several reasons in a work on eroticism for tackling first transgression in general and that of the taboo on murder in particular. It would be impossible to grasp the significance of eroticism without reference to the general pattern. 
eroticism as disconcerting and difficult to comprehend if its contradictory effects have not first been seen more clearly and earlier in time in another domain. All that the Spanish Levant paintings show is how long ago two groups of adversaries first met in war, but archaeological evidence on war is in general abundant. The struggle between two groups demands in itself a few essential rules. The first obviously concerns the marking off of hostile groups and a declaration of hostilities before the combat. We have definite knowledge of the rules for a declaration of war among primitive peoples. The aggressor's own private decision might suffice, and then the adversary was taken by surprise. But it seemed more frequently within the spirit of the transgression to give him a ritual warning. The war that followed might itself develop according to rules. Primitive war is rather like a holiday, a feast day, and even modern war almost always has some of this paradoxical similarity. The taste for showy and magnificent war dress goes very far back, for originally war seemed a luxury. It was no attempt to increase the people's or rulers' riches by conquest. It was an aggressive and extravagant exuberance. The distinction between ritual and calculated forms of war. Military uniforms have carried on this tradition right up to modern times. The preponderant consideration now, however, is to avoid attracting the enemy's fire. But this concern to minimise losses is foreign to the earliest spirit of war. Transgressing the taboo was first and foremost an end in itself, though secondarily it may have served some other purpose. There are grounds for believing that war was first another outlet for the feelings that are given expression in ceremonial rites. The evolution of war in feudal China, long before our own date, is described thus. A baron's war began with a challenge. Warriors sent by their lord would come and die heroically by their own hand before the rival lord or else a war chariot would hurl itself insultingly towards the adversary's city gates. And then the chariots engage in a melee, and the lords make conventional charges at each other before the fight to the death begins in earnest. The archaic aspects of the Homeric Wars have a universal character. It was really a game, but the results were so serious that very soon calculated actions superseded obedience to the rules of the game. The history of China makes this plain. As time goes on, these chivalrous customs lapse. What was once a war of chivalry degenerates into a pitiless struggle, into a clash of peoples and the entire population of a province would be hurled against its neighbours. War has in fact always oscillated between giving primary importance to adherence to the rules when war is an end in itself, and setting a premium on the hoped-for political results. Even in our own day, there are two opposite schools of thought among military specialists. Clausewitz took his stand against exponents of the tradition of chivalry and emphasised the need to destroy the enemy's forces without pity. War, he writes, is an act of violence, and there is no limit to the manifestation of this violence. There is no doubt that, broadly speaking, his tendency has slowly come to the fore in the modern world, superseding the ritual practices of the past with their hold on the older generation. We must be careful not to confuse the humanization of war and its fundamental tradition. Up to a certain point, the necessities of war have left room for the development of individual rights. The spirit of traditional rules may have favoured this development, 
but the rules themselves never correspond with our contemporary concern to limit losses or the suffering of combatants. Limits were set to the breaking of the taboo, but they were formal ones. The aggressive impulse did not hold undisputed sway. Conditions were laid down, rules were meticulously observed, but once the frenzy was loosed, it knew no bounds. Cruelty and Organised War War was different in kind from animal violence, and it developed a cruelty animals are incapable of, especially in that the fight, frequently followed by a massacre of the enemy, was as often as not a prelude to the torture of the prisoners. This cruelty is the specifically human aspect of war. I take the following frightful details from Morris Davy. In Africa, war captives are often tortured, killed, or allowed to starve to death. Among the Tshi-speaking peoples, prisoners of war are treated with shocking barbarity. Men, women, and children, mothers with infants on their backs, and little children scarcely able to walk are stripped and secured together with cords around the neck in gangs of ten or fifteen, each prisoner being additionally secured by having the hands fixed to a heavy block of wood which has to be carried on the head. Thus hampered and so insufficiently fed that they are reduced to mere skeletons, they are driven after the victorious army for month after month, their brutal guards treating them with the greatest cruelty. While, should the captors suffer a reverse, they are at once indiscriminately slaughtered to prevent recapture. Ramsayer and Kuna mention the case of a prisoner, a native of Accra, who was kept in a log, that is, secured to the frailed trunk of a tree by an iron staple driven over his wrist with insufficient food for four months and who died under this ill-treatment. Another time they saw amongst some prisoners a poor, weak child who, when angrily ordered to stand upright, painfully drew himself upright, showing the sunken frame in which every bone was visible. Most of the prisoners seen on this occasion were mere living skeletons. One boy was so reduced by starvation that his neck was unable to support the weight of his head, which, if he sat, drooped almost to his knees. Another, equally emaciated, coughed as if it was the last gasp, while a young child was so weak from want of food as to be unable to stand. The Ashantis were much surprised that the missionaries should exhibit any emotion at such spectacles, and on one occasion, when they went to give food to some starving children, the guards angrily drove them back. Both the regular army and the Levis and Dahomey show an equal callousness to human suffering. Wounded prisoners are denied all assistance and all prisoners who are not destined to slavery are kept in a condition of semi-starvation that speedily reduces them to mere skeletons. The lower jawbone is much prized as a trophy, and it is very frequently torn from the wounded and living foe. The scenes that followed the sack of a fortress in Fiji are too horrible to be described in detail. That neither age nor sex was spared was the least atrocious feature. Nameless mutilations inflicted sometimes on living victims, deeds of mingled cruelty and lust, made self-destruction preferable to capture. With the fatalism that underlies the Melanesian character, many would not attempt to run away but would bow their heads passively to the club stroke. If any were miserable enough to be taken alive, their fate was awful indeed. Carried back bound to the main village, they were given up to young boys of rank to practice their ingenuity and torture, 
or stunned by a blow when they were laid in heated ovens, and when the heat brought them back to consciousness of pain, their frantic struggles would convulse the spectators with laughter. Violence, not cruel in itself, is essentially something organised in the transgression of taboos. Cruelty is one of its forms. It is not necessarily erotic, but it may veer towards other forms of violence organised by transgression. Eroticism, like cruelty, is premeditated. Cruelty and eroticism are conscious intentions in the mind which has resolved to trespass into a forbidden field of behaviour. Such a determination is not a general one, but it is always possible to pass from one domain to another. For these contiguous domains are both founded on the heady exhilaration of making a determined escape from the power of a taboo. The resolve is all the more powerful because the return to stability afterwards is at the back of the mind, and without that the outward surge could not take place. It is as if the waters should overflow and yet be certain to subside again at the same time. The transition from one state to another may be made as long as the basic framework is not risked. Cruelty may veer towards eroticism, and similarly a massacre of prisoners may possibly end in cannibalism. But a return to animality where all limits are removed is inconceivable as war. There are always some reserves made which stress the human character of even unbridled violence. A thirst for blood. The warriors still do not turn on each other in their frenzy. Here is an intangible rule which regulates fury at its roots. Similarly, the taboo on cannibalism generally persists even when the most inhuman passions are raging. We must point out that the most sinister forms are not necessarily linked with primitive savagery. Organised war with its efficient military operations based on discipline, which, when all is said and done, excludes the mass of the combatants from the pleasure of transgressing the limits, has been caught up in a mechanism foreign to the impulsions which set it off in the first place. War today has only the remotest connection with war as I have described it. It is a dismal aberration geared to political ends. Primitive war itself can hardly be defended. From the outset it bore the seeds of modern warfare, but the organised form we are familiar with today that has travelled such a long way from the original organised transgression of the taboo is the only one that would leave humanity unsatisfied.